Greetings through Christ this morning. May his grace, mercy, and peace be to you. A couple months ago, I received a suggestion on a sermon topic. And by the way, I think I've always been glad for those suggestions. I remember years ago, there used to be a suggestion box. But I don't know if we ought to resurrect that or not. It doesn't seem like there's many come in, but I'm always glad, and I think others are too, for suggestions. Because that is one of the things that we wrestle with is, what does the congregation need? And there we have a straight line. The suggestion I received is baptism. Why do we practice what we do? So this is not an expository sermon. This is more of a teaching session. But I think there is plenty here that can challenge us and encourage us as we live for the Lord. So the title this morning is The Mode and Meaning of Baptism. The Mode and Meaning of Baptism. What does Scripture say about baptism? What is its significance? How should it be administered? Well, I want to be practical and honest. Uh, I am not here to prove someone wrong, but simply to examine what the New Testament says and compare our practice to it. I won't be referring to all Scripture that speaks of baptism, but a representative sample. And I would like to say to our visitors here this morning that This is not a hobby horse that we ride regularly. I think folks here would testify to that. And if your practice is different than this, I, depending on what it is, I'm not standing here in judgment. Baptism is not unique to the New Testament. We have various passages. If you went back to the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, I'm sure there would be many. But uh, in, in Hebrews 9, we have this passage. The Holy Spirit is talking about the temple and the rituals there. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic For the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, they cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. Concerned only with food and drinks, various washings. And that word there is baptismos or baptisms. And so they looked at some of these cleansing rituals and ceremonies in the Old Testament is baptism. So when John the Baptist started uh, performing baptisms and when Christ and his disciples did baptisms and when the New Testament church in the book of Acts did baptisms, this was not a very, this was not an entirely new concept. They didn't say, you know, well, what's this all about? Well, you know, it was something similar to what they had been done in the Old Testament in the temple rituals and worship. But its focus was something entirely different. But just want to point out that in the Old Testament, there were things, there were rituals that they termed baptisms. 
if they were speaking in Greek and another equivalent term in the Hebrew. The two testament speaks uh, first of, uh, of John's baptism, baptisms he performed there at the Jordan River. And what John administered was termed a baptism of repentance, a baptism of repentance. And that is what it signified. That people came and they admitted and confessed to their sins and they said, I repent. And John the Baptist baptized them on the basis of that, sealing before man and God their repentance. It was not connected with the new birth or the outpouring of the Holy Spirit or membership in the body of Christ. It was a symbolic cleansing that involved the confession of sin and repentance from it. Uh, Mark 1.4, we have, for example, John did baptize in the wilderness and preach the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, and they receive forgiveness. There is a similar statement in all four of the Gospels, something that each of the writers had picked up on, as well as in Acts. Uh, you know, it's, this is quoted that John preached a baptism of repentance, but then went on to speak of a further development in what baptism signified, which we'll get to later. <clears throat> John's baptism, this baptism of repentance, seemed to have been something that kind of caught on to their culture. And it, it hung around. Even later in the book of Acts, we have it referred to. Uh, Acts 19, 1 through 6, I'd like to read those verses. And it came to pass, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus. So this over picture over in Asia Minor. Um, he's, he's traveling there and he, he, he came to some of the back country there around Ephesus and finding certain disciples, he said unto them, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believe? And they said unto him, we have not so much heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And he said then, unto what were you baptized? And they said, unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people they should believe on him that should come after him. That is Jesus Christ. John predicted that there was one coming who was much greater than he. And he said, I'm, I'll quote this. I want to quote it later. I'm baptizing you with water, but there's one coming who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And you listen, you watch out for him. He's the important one. He said, I'm not even worthy to tie his shoes. Well, so these, these people had said that, um, yes, they were, they were baptized to John's baptism and they recognized that there was a prediction of someone to come, but they didn't really know about what had happened after that. And, and so Paul preached to them, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to people they should believe on him that should come after him, that is Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. The power of God was evident. When they exercised faith in Jesus Christ, they received God's gift 
of his divine presence through the Holy Spirit. And God showed what was going on through miraculous infilling there through power of speaking in other languages and prophesying. doesn't say what all that was, but there were various instances in the, old, in the New Testament in Acts where there were prophecies made of what would happen in the future. And it did. You know, Paul's imprisonment, a drought, this bad time in, in, among the people of Palestine. <clears throat> All right, so we, we usually think of baptism as something that was practiced after the church was established. But you know the verse that we have in John 4, uh, the first two verses of John 4, when therefore the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, and then in parentheses, though Jesus himself baptized not, but his disciples. And I would understand this to be a baptism similar to that of John's, of people confessing their sins and repenting and making this outward statement by submitting themselves to baptism. I've referred to Paul speaking about this one to come, but in Mark 1.8, we have this verse, I indeed, this is John the Baptist speaking, I, have, I indeed have baptized you with water, but he, this greater one that will come after me, he shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit ghost so he's drawing a parallel there between baptizing with water and Christ baptizing with the Holy Ghost and I want you to keep that parallel in mind as we progress through this the giving of the Holy Spirit his outpouring from the Father is pictured as the outpouring of water on one. However, baptism was administered. There was a parallel drawn between that and the outpouring, the giving of the Holy Spirit into one's life. Baptize, baptism is used to refer to being completely engulfed in something. There's various examples of that. Jesus spoke of experiencing suffering as a baptism. When, I believe it was James and John came and said, hey, we'd like to be important people, to have an important role in your kingdom. And Jesus didn't say yes or no. He simply said, well, can you be baptized with the baptism that I am going to be baptized with? Can you drink from the cup? from which I will drink? And they, you know, very self-confidently said, sure, we can do that. They knew not whereof they spoke. And Jesus said, well, you will. Your role in the kingdom is something that God gives and not something that... But Jesus spoke of the suffering that would come, that would engulf him. As a suffering certainly was something that affected Romans 6 uses this imagery as well 
speaks of being buried with him, that is Christ, buried with him by baptism unto death. We die. And uh, says, then like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of the power of God would just engulf us that as we die to ourselves and we die to sin, then God raises us up. And it's just something that just envelops us and engulfs us and empowers us. But it uses the term we're baptized into this. So it's used a little more broadly than just speaking of water being applied to one's person in whatever form that might have been. We also have that famous command of Christ at the end of his ministry here on earth, just before he ascends back to his father. He tells his disciples, go ye therefore and teach all nations, all peoples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost to observe all things whatsoever I and lo, even unto the end of the world. What did that mean to the disciples? I think we can see something of their understanding by how they practiced it in the book of Acts. After the day of Pentecost, the disciples certainly did obey that command. Acts portrays thousands being baptized as the initiatory rite into the church of Jesus. It recounts dozens, at least a dozen incidents of people being baptized, individuals being baptized with water upon acceptance of and commitment to Christ as the Messiah of God. And it also uses the term of baptism to describe the divine giving of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 2, when Peter stands up to explain what is happening there on the day of Pentecost, he quotes from the Old Testament to show God's promise of his spirit upon man. He, he referenced the book of Joel there. <coughs> and uh, he said, you know, Joel spoke about this, that, let me just turn to that. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, and on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit. He goes on to talk about other signs that will accompany that, starting with verse uh, and verse 17. But Isaiah uses similar words. 44.3 and Zechariah 12.10 talks about God giving his spirit to those who believed on him, accepted him, committed themselves. And so Peter said, what's happening here? These, these strange things that everybody came running from all over Jerusalem, really caught people's attention. Everybody was talking about it. That was just the focus of everything there on that day. And Peter said, hey, 
He said, these men aren't drunk. And he said, this is a fulfillment of this prophecy and it's because of the infilling of the Holy Spirit that you see these things. He is the one who has enabled this miraculous either speaking in other languages or understanding languages unknown to the hearer. It's because of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, I'm Christ, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this which ye now see and hear. Down to 33. Often, uh, there are some denominations that, that have as a part of their symbol this dove there is representing the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit descended on Christ, scriptures tell us, in the form of a dove there at his baptism. And I think that's a worthy symbol. Should be very much a part of our faith. Not that we exalt the Holy Spirit above Christ, but that we recognize the need, his power, his outpouring upon us and our submitting ourselves to his voice. As he speaks to us, as we hear him speak through the word. How should we implement, practice baptism? I meant to say, again, we see a parallel of the term pouring associated with the giving of the Holy Spirit and the, uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Terms are used somewhat synonymously. Some effort has been made to support immersion by a term that some of the gospel writers use, that uh, at Jesus' baptism, he went up straightway out of the water. Matthew and Mark says, and straightway coming up out of the water, the baptism of the Ethiopian by, by Philip in Acts 8 says that straightway coming up out, I would like to point out that straightway simply means immediately. Straightway, just immediately he did. And uh, coming up out certainly does mean an ascension but picture a baptism in a stream or a, those are always low spots. And so someone leaving it would come up out of it, whether and, and maybe they were completely immersed. That's possible, but I don't think it rules out pouring. Or the term that is definitively used is effusion. Effusion refers to the pouring of water could mean either one. We have a description of baptism in ancient writings. This is not scripture. The Didache, the document that uh, was written somewhere, I don't hardly know, but somewhere between 50 and 150 AD, that gives this description or this proscription of baptism, how it should be administered. <clears throat> but with respect to baptism, baptize as follows. 
Having said all these things in advance, baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit in running, actually the original literally means in living water, but it's, it's talking about running water, moving water, not just some stagnant pool. Baptize in living, running water, but if you do not have running water, baptize in some other water. And if you cannot baptize in cold water, use warm. But if you have neither, pour water on the head three times in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. But both the one baptizing and the one being baptized should fast before the baptism along with some other if they can. But command the one being baptized to fast one or two days in advance. That was how it was practiced in that day. Now the Didache is a non-canonical writing. It makes no claim to be inspired of God. We simply have here the record of how the early church did and how they taught each other. <coughs> Many theologians and historians claim that immersion was the standard practice of the early. It may have been. It may have been. But I think the basis for that assumption, from what I can determine, seems to be on this, based on this statement from the Didache that one, the preferred place for baptism is in running water. That is a stream of some sort. And two, that most of the artistic depictions of early church baptism so show the efficient placing his hand on the head of the candidate. And so they say, well, you know, he's got his hand on his head, so obviously he was just preparing to or he had just finished dunking him under the water. Well, it's not, it doesn't sound real convincing to me, but, but I guess I don't see either of, of those things, the fact of it being supposedly the ideal method, although they, they obviously opened the door to some other application of water. Uh, it uh, ideally was in running water, but did that mean that they may not have? What is interesting, though, is just about all of those early art representations of baptism that are preserved, extant today, show the person, the officiant, the one doing the baptizing, with a bowl of water in his hand, pouring it on the head of the individual. And that seems to be kind of ignored. Okay, but... We at least know that that was how they represented it. Some have said, well, you know, the, this is all about symbols. Well, I would just tend to take it at literal face value. I don't want to make a big issue of the mode of baptism. Scripture, exactly how baptism should be administered. How it was done nor how we should do it. It just says baptize them. So I think we can learn something there. I would say, however, that a better case, I believe, could be made for pouring or effusion than for us. I don't think we need to take the back seat on our practice. So 
Kind of in summarizing what I've said, I would make three simple arguments in support of our historical practice. One, what does baptism represent? Many would say, well, it's, it's you know, water lobbies for cleansing. You take a bath, you get rid of the dirt on you, and so it represents cleansing from sin. And there's truth in that. But I think we need to be careful that we don't get the cart before the horse, that we don't emphasize the less important at the expense. As Anabaptists, we believe that even more important than being cleansed from our past sins is being empowered to live above sin in the future. And therefore, I think we put a greater emphasis on the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to live as we should rather than simply taking care of sins in the past, which is all part of the picture. But I think there are many churches where that is almost where forgiveness for sins is the totality of the emphasis. And I think that's a mistake. When Christ would have us live for him, as our Sunday school lesson emphasized. I've tried to emphasize this up to this point in the sermon that there is this parallel drawn between baptism and the gift of the Holy Spirit, often termed in Scripture as the outpouring, pouring out of the Holy And so I think that is just as valid, if not more so representation of what the baptism represents. And, and we're not trying to divorce either of these issues from each other, but I'm saying let's not forget the importance of the and the infilling of God's Holy Spirit upon the believer. I mentioned the archeological records that we have, mosaics, paintings, the both of Christ's baptism and of, of other baptisms. There are many, many. In fact, I didn't, I didn't do a lot of research, but people freely admit that just about all of the paintings that are extant from that era show a bowl pouring water out. So we have that argument. Then there are some practical considerations regarding baptism. Pouring can be administered under almost any condition from Antarctica to a hospital bed. From the Sahara Desert to downtown Manhattan. From a jail cell to a private house in Iran or China. Not hard to do. Immersion could be a bit more of a challenge. It can be administered in almost any kind of weather, any climate, any circumstance in which man lives. Now I said this is a practical consideration and practical considerations do not override biblical principles. I'm not elevating it to that level, but we do take into account practical considerations we make decisions about how we practice and live. So I feel that we have biblical and logical grounds for our practice. 
We do not say that immersion is invalid, even though we do not practice for the reasons mentioned. There is one aspect of baptism, though, that we do count as invalid, and that is the baptism of young children. Baptism always needs to be based upon a personal faith and acceptance and trust in Jesus, a commitment to follow him. And very young children are incapable of any of those things. I'd like to make several observations about the significance of baptism. Turn with me to 1 Peter 3. Now we have this passage here toward the end of the chapter, uh, verse 18, a couple next couple verses, 1 Peter 3, 18, talks about Christ suffering for sins and how that he went and preached to the spirits in prison, which that's off topic this morning. Maybe you can explain that to me. But, um, and it talks about this time when God was long-suffering in the days of Noah. He waited until the ark was prepared, and then he brought the flood on the earth, and there were eight souls saved. And then verse 21, the like figure. All right, so what's he talking about? He's talking about the ark and the flood. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is not saying that you'll be saved if you're baptized, but he's saying the resurrection of Jesus Christ is what saves us. And I think that includes his death, his death and resurrection. That is the basis of our salvation. Christ is death and resurrection. And so you have this, this parallel where, you know, many were lost, some were saved and protected, and so in Christ we can be saved. But there was water there. And so, you know, he's drawing this, kind of pulling these things together and said, okay, just like people were saved from the water uh, here in this, this context of this flood, and they were, they were safe in the ark, so in Christ we're saved. And so, you know, use water to, to represent what happened there. I, you could understand that variously, perhaps. But Peter does point out this, uh, this parallel here. <coughs> and I'd like to make several observations from this passage. First of all, that Baptism is an ordinance and not a sacrament. Now, those are not terms the Bible uses. But an ordinance is a ritual that represents something. A sacrament is some... We don't have sacraments in our church. But for churches that do, they view a sacrament as some, some, a means by which God imparts His grace by one participating in some physical act whether it's the taking of communion or baptism or the last rites or you know, whatever it might be. We do not endorse sacraments. We believe that all these rituals mean nothing 
if it's not accompanied by a, a heart that is yielded and committed to God. So we have these rituals, but he says here that a baptism is taking a bath. It's not for the purpose of getting the filth off of you, but it is the answer of good conscience toward God. Some of the early church fathers really went awry in, in considering these rituals in themselves, the physical act to have a spiritual merit. Augustine was chief among them. And from his writings and teachings, we developed the, uh, the principles of Calvinism. Calvin put them into a better form perhaps, but I see that as, as one of the dangers that we face. Are the, there were various false concepts about baptism. One of them with the ceremony a baptism cleanse one from sin and so then if you accept that then you can take and you can or must take another step well you know what about those who haven't been baptized um, who breathes only a few minutes after birth or dies in a few days and so there was this rush to get a child baptized as quickly as you could they could experience the merits of Christ. You see how one, one false concept leads to another. There was another misconception, and that was that once one was baptized, if you fell into sin, there was no restoration. You, you had one chance, kind of like a glider coming in for a landing. You messed that one up. And so there was actually the teaching in, in some of these first centuries that, uh, you know, it was a bit chancy to get baptized. You'd better do your sinning first and make sure you were all done with it or wait until you're older and more mature and more ability to resist, more able to resist temptation and then make a stand for Christ. And, and be, you see where all these, you start with one wrong premise and you end up with all kinds of illogical, unbiblical positions. If I can say something a bit tongue-in-cheek, that Rumspringa has deep roots. It goes way back. <clears throat> You know, accepting the teachings of Christ at their face value keeps us out of a lot of wrong positions. You know, some very simple statements. When he said, let the children come to you, for if such is the kingdom of heaven. You know, love your neighbor as yourself. And just many things untie some of the naughtiest things using the word K-N-O-T, naughtiest, things that theologians wrestle with. Let's be followers of Jesus Christ. Baptism is the answer. It's the testimony of a good conscience. 
toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a testimony or witness of a cleansed heart to God and man of the salvation that we have experienced through the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection of Christ is the means of our salvation. Baptism is a type, it's a figure, it's a metaphor of our salvation. It's not the means of our salvation, but testimony of it. Baptism is a public declaration that one is now a follower of Jesus Christ. Many people who, what's the term today? Self-identify. Do people ever self-identify as Christians? You know, the very, the essence of the word as I understand it is the declaration of something that is against fact. We, we have people self-identifying as some gender or another when that's not the reality of it at all. There are people who self-identify as Christians. Many people, I think, are baptized as Christians with really little thought to what it means. And I hope, especially if you're sitting here this morning, that that is not our situation. Do you understand that baptism is a serious commitment before God, a complete laying down of ourselves and acceptance of Christ as our Lord and Savior and one whom we follow, that we live as best we can as Christ lived. It's so much more than the acceptance of some mental theological truth that Christ is God. You know, uh, Statements of faith or these uh, creeds, they have their place. They can keep us on safe theological ground. But let's never think that being a Christian is simply the acceptance, the mental acceptance of those truths. It's a commitment of ourselves to live them out. I'm afraid there are people who say, yes, I self-identify as a Christian when their lives are so different than the life of our Savior. I recall being at a funeral where the preacher said pretty much like this. He, he offered hope of the one who lay before us because he said, you know what? I talked with him one time and, and, and he... I'm not sure that there was much outward evidence of it, and he's in the hands of God. I don't know. But the preacher said, you know, hey, he believed. And he said, you know what, if you just believe today, that you need to do. He said, you don't need to go to church. You don't have to do anything. You just believe. He literally said that. I'll use another adjective. He blatantly said that. I wonder if he will someday have blood on his hands. I would tremble to be in his position. While the initial step of salvation is an exercise of faith, yet it involves a commitment to live for Christ, to follow him, to allow his spirit to enter us and control us. And therein lies this concept of sanctification that we touched on in our Sunday school lesson. 
where the Holy Spirit is continuing to make us more and more into the image of Christ. That should be something that we strive for every day. Baptism is a declaration that that is our intention. That I'm all Christ. The Bible is full of passages that emphasize that salvation in Christ is a continual process. Yes, we begin by a step of faith accepting what Christ has done, believing it. But there is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that we need to open ourselves up to and follow him, be empowered by him. No, we cannot save ourselves by anything we do, we do or say alone. But yes, Christ asks for our cooperation and obedience. I think we need to be careful about how we pick up the terminology of our religious call and try to express the truth in the terms that we use. Might sound good, you know. Christ paid it all. All we got to do is believe. There's some truth there, but it's not the whole truth. Philippians 2.12 says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Does that mean you can save yourself by your works? No. Perhaps a better translation would be express your salvation. If you're a child of God, He has saved you, and He has given you of His Holy Spirit, now you express it by the way that you live. Every day, every moment. The Spanish, interesting to look at that there. The, the Reina Valera literally says, occupy yourselves in your salvation. Focus on it. Make that a real goal, a continual effort in your life. So when we make our vows at baptism, we are verbalizing the meaning it's not just something that's thrown in just uh, you know, make it easier for the church to be administered, but when we say, we express our belief in the triune God and we say that we are truly sorry for all our past sins. And we renounce Satan, the world, and all the works of darkness and our own carnal will and sinful desires. That's what baptism is all about, a testimony. That that is what we believe and that is our intention. Perhaps none of us will keep it. But we should do our best. And if we find ourselves to have failed, we need to back up and seek forgiveness. And start again afresh. That commitment is the essence of baptism. Oh, that we could grasp that truth and embrace it with all us. And along with that commitment, we are also identifying ourselves with Jesus Christ. I've seen the question posed, can one be a Christian secretly without anyone knowing? Maybe we won't tell everybody we meet there. Surely we will let some people know. And even those who were at, whose lives were put at risk by their confession of Jesus Christ, did it. Maybe not all of them, but many, many, many felt the need to say, I am a Christian. I am a Christian. 
and therefore I cannot do this, or therefore I will do this. I am a Christian. I am a follower of Jesus Christ. I remember being called for jury duty. Yep, got to be there. Okay. And I gave some thought to how I would respond in the situation, but uh, I was called to answer. I was actually put on the jury. He said, you go over there and sit over there. You know, I really can't do this. I said, what is it? He said, go ahead and have a seat, and, you know, you'll have a chance. Okay. And uh, the bailiff was good at his word. He went and talked to the judge. The jury was all seated. And... Then the judge dismissed for lunch, but he said, Mr. Myers and our, the attorneys here have a business to take care of. And you know, I gave him high mark. He was a kind judge. He was good to me, but he let me express myself. And I determined that I was going to define myself as a follower of Jesus Christ. I imagine most everybody in that courtroom would have said, yeah, I'm a Christian, a self-defined Christian. Maybe some of them were true Christians. But I decided, I'm going to say, I'm a follower of Jesus. And so therefore, I cannot stand and pass judgment on my fellow man. You know, the attorneys resisted that for a little while. But, you know, I stuck to my guns and they finally said, I have to go. You don't have to come back. Well, you know, I just praise God. That was a good opportunity. But I think we should look for those opportunities. By the way, I, if, if, don't come crying to me if you get called for jury duty. I think it's a good thing. Uh, Good for you. Develop your muscles. But our baptism is a public statement that we identify with Christ. You know, Jesus said these words, He that denies me before men, him will I also deny before my Father who is in heaven. That should give us some What's the word I want? That should motivate us to identify with Christ, shouldn't it? And not to identify with the world and its values. We identify with Christ and his values. We promote what he promotes. We devote ourselves to building his kingdom. We cheerfully obey his commandment. We search for ways to love our enemies and love each other. In all things, we proclaim Jesus Christ starting with our baptism and continuing through life. Done. Philippians 3, I'd like just to refer to a couple verses there. Paul's testimony about how he looked at Christ, said, you know, everything that I regained in life, he said, it's nothing compared to Christ. And he says in, in verse 1, I want to be found in him, not having my own righteousness, that doing what is right according to the law, but that just which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his suffering. Identify with, identify with Christ even if I have to suffer the way he did. And many have. Be made conformable into his death. He said, I haven't gained all that yet, but he said, I'm following after that I may apprehend or I may 
attain to which Christ has called. I'm forgetting those things that are behind, taking care of those things and reaching forth to the things that are before I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Jesus. That's what baptism represents. Let's live it out. Thank you.